Well, this series that we're in focuses on all the ways in which we can lift high Jesus Christ. Last week we had talked about how the unity within this local congregation can stir people to see that Jesus Christ is unified with the Father. And any time a group is unified as a church, that points to Jesus Christ and He's the one that gets exalted and God the Father in heaven gets praised for it. Today we want to continue off of the same scriptures we were in last week in Ephesians 4 and we want to see how when we're a body of believers, we're strongest. But when we're splintered, we become weak. And that is when the believers all around the world unite together under common interests of Jesus Christ, we become a cohesive group of churches and we're able to demonstrate God's great power and acts within the world. But you know, over the time of lifespan of the church, Christians have been classified not necessarily by the doctrines that we're about to read here today, but more by creeds or doctrines of man or various other things. So let me give you a quick history of how we got to the place where we're at from the original time in which Jesus said that he was going to start his church. You know, since Jesus had proclaimed that a church was going to be formed, it usually started with a collection of families. Those families were believers that met together, and other families would join up on the first day of the week on a Sunday, and they would break bread, communion, they would fellowship together and take care of each other's needs. And as those groups begin to get bigger, and the community begin to be vocal about the name of Jesus Christ and the hope that he provided and the salvation in Jesus, those groups of families became rather large, and they became full-sized churches. Not small churches. Some of these churches were 7,000, 10,000, 15,000 big. And they had one localized teacher. But because there was no New Testament scriptures, they had no way to really guide themselves. And so they relied on the apostles that were still alive. And that's kind of why we see some of the epistles of Paul, the New Testament writings of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, and the book of Romans, etc., is because the Apostle Paul made these missionary journeys to make sure that these fledgling churches would be taught the Old Testament scriptures and have those scriptures be then applied to things of Christ. And so the churches at that time really relied on the apostles that were still alive. And the apostles were older men. They had spent time with Jesus. They knew his teachings. Some of them had written down words of his in the Gospels. And they had formed a small council of apostles. So if you were a church that was looking for how to take care of leadership matters or how to deal with sin, and you didn't know how, you'd go to that group of apostles that were walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, and they would say, how did Jesus handle this? And they would tell you, here's what Jesus did. Here's how Jesus would handle this. You see, with no scriptures in place to guide them at the time, they had to rely on the apostles that were close to Jesus. And as the scriptures became canonized and rolled in and the gospel writers began to tell the world in written form about who Jesus was and the apostle Paul began to write letters through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the church began to collect these letters and these gospels and put them into New Testament form And churches all around the world were given these copies and given these letters, and they were able to guide their churches and their leadership totally independent of any denomination or hierarchy. And then about, you know, 300 AD or so, the church in Rome, partnering with the government of Rome, had decided that it would be best to bring unity to all these churches scattered all around the world. And so they created a universal church. 
a Catholic church, and they had thought it was best that it be governed by one group rather than having all these other groups, all these other churches be independent of one another. Now, the idea started off a pretty good idea. But you can see that there's always people that don't want to be placed under the authority of another man. And so other denominations begin to splinter off from that one. And so here you find yourself today with all these different denominations and denominations having denominations within those denominations. Until about 200 years ago, there were a group of prominent preachers in the United States that said, we've had enough of this. They were all uh, denominational preachers and they just said, there's just too much authority of man here. There's too much creed. There's too much written directive by man rather than by God. And we want to get back to the, old, the, the New Testament and the way the early church did things. And so they said, we are not going to have any creed but the creed of Jesus Christ. That's it. And we're going to try to establish a church that was much like the early church in the book of Acts. While the methodology may be different, we want to have the same principles as that early church. And that's what's called the restoration movement. Now, Bethany Christian Church just happens to be one of those churches that was spurred off of that movement that happened over 200 years ago. You see, we're not Protestants, we're Reformationists. We're not protesting anything. We're trying to restore the early church back to its, its roots in the Bible. And so Bethany, we don't have a hierarchy. We don't have a council that meets in Indianapolis and gives us some kind of decree that doesn't fit as we minister here in Washington, Indiana. We are guided by the principles of the Bible and the leadership we're determined upon to allow that Bible to convict us so that the, the leading of this church will be under God's authority rather than our own. But please don't have that mean in your mind that we're infallible, that we have no heir. We have heirs. We are human people. Sometimes there's misinterpretations of Scripture. Sometimes there's not a full understanding. Sometimes uh, you find yourself in a church maybe that isn't a denominational church and is independent of itself, but the leadership is just poor. You know, a church is only as good as the leadership is godly. And if you find yourself in a congregation where the leadership's not godly and they're just selfish and they're just looking out for themselves, you're going to find yourself in a pretty weak church. Today, I want to remind you of a valuable truth as we meet together as independent people without a hierarchy system, without being in the denomination. Here's the truth. Are you ready? We are Christians only, but we are not the only Christians. Friends, we are Christians only at Bethany Christian Church, but we are not the only Christians. I think you can get sucked in real quick to this idea that just because a church does ministry differently or maybe has a few different doctrines that guide them in a different way that we can all of a sudden say you know what they're not anything like us and since they're not anything like us they're not saved and we're the saved ones and you can put yourself in this position of piousness believing that we're the only church or we're the only group or groups like us that can actually go to heaven when you get in ephesians 4 that's not true the Apostle Paul lists down reasons for unity. And he says, these seven core doctrines have to be a part of every church for there to be unity in Jesus Christ. So let's find some common ground together. Let's look at these seven things that unite us in Christ. And friends, if these seven things are found in a church, we can call them brothers and sisters. But I'll be honest with you, and I don't want this to sound like an attack. If these things aren't found, then something else is going on.
Not to say what that is. I have no idea. But if you don't find these seven core doctrines in a congregation, then my guess is they're more led by man than they are by God. Ephesians chapter 4, let's look back to where we started last week in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, here's the scriptures that we're going to focus on today. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and is through all and who is in all. Now, you see the important thing that Paul points out at the very beginning? Paul says, remember, we're a part of a bigger body. What happens in the four walls of Bethany Christian Church happens in other places around the world. And there are men and women and children that believe in Jesus who are saved. And we're worshiping the same God and we're all going to meet with them in heaven. And we've never met them before. And it's important as a church to remember that we're part of something greater. The church isn't an organization. Friends, the church isn't a business. The church isn't even an institution. Only time the Bible describes what the church is, is in the illustration of our bodies. And God, in His infinite wisdom, understood that we would find some things out about our bodies later in life. And science has proven, science has proven that our bodies are really complex. So complex, in fact, that we found out that our bodies are made up of intricate, tiny little cells. So many cells, it's unfathomable even to count. But science has also proved that we start as one cell. And off of that one cell, all these other cells which are multiplying and, and, and taking root and beginning are all from that original cell. And so we have to remember as a church that Bethany Christian Church is one cell of millions of cells which make up the body of Christ, His church. And I think sometimes we can lose focus of that. And we look at our ministries and we say, well, we must be doing something right. They seem pretty effective. Or we hear the preaching or the teaching. We say, I don't know. He sounds pretty powerful and convicted. He sweats a lot when he preaches, so it looks important. Uh, We get tunnel vision real quick. And we can think that our expression of worship or our methodologies are the right ones. And whoever's not doing those methodologies or this kind of worship must be wrong. When we need to remember... That we're just one small cell out of a bigger group that makes up the body of Christ. And I think in this entire mix of independent churches like us and denominational churches, we have the church suffer because we let small things, maybe even unimportant things, divide us and fracture us. Some of you know who the comedian Emo Phillips is. He has a strange way of, of telling jokes. He tells this joke about denominations He says, once I saw a guy on a bridge about to jump, and I said, don't do it. He said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He he said, yeah, I do. I said, are you a Christian or are you a Jew? He said, well, I'm a Christian. I said, me too. Are you Protestant or are you Catholic? He said, well, I'm a Protestant. He said, me too. What denomination? The man said, Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, that's great. Me too. Northern conservative Baptist or Northern liberal Baptist? Well, Northern conservative Baptist. Me too. 
Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern region? Well, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. Me too. Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) Doesn't that explain how we treat one another in just small matters that don't make any sense? In little areas, we allow division to creep in when we have to realize as the Apostle Paul states at the very beginning, before he gets into this exhaustive list, we're one body, one cell of the body of Christ. But friends, here's what we need to remember. We are the body. We're not the brains. The Bible says that God, Christ, is the head of the church. It's, it's not the preacher. It's not the elders. It's not a council of hierarchy. It's not the Pope. It's Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 says, He is the head, which is the church. So Paul fills us in a little bit more on what needs to happen in the church, what doctrine needs to be accepted in the church for there to be unity. And that is, we're filled with the same spirit. Hear what he says? We're one spirit. We're one body. We're one spirit. And I think it's important to teach you about the original language of the New Testament for just a moment. The original language of the New Testament was written in Greek. And the word spirit in the word Greek is the word pneuma. That word pneuma has been translated spirit so that we would understand it. But the Greeks always knew it as the word breath. They meant it as breath giving life. Jesus explains it like this. He says, it's the spirit that gives life. Meaning it's the breath of God that gives us life. And just like the body is dead when there's no breath in it, you can think of it like this. The church is dead when there is no spirit of God within it. And the church is connected by the body of Christ. And yet, if there is no spirit within a congregation, there's no life within it. Now, let me, underst- let me have you understand what spirit is here. Spirit doesn't mean that the church is wild and charismatic necessarily. Spirit doesn't mean that that, that the preacher's pumped up and that the band rocks out. Spirit doesn't mean that the church is filled with multidimensional ministries and the church is filled with all sorts of comings and goings. That doesn't mean that a church is spirit-filled. As a matter of fact, the way that you can recognize a spirit-filled church has nothing to do with what is listed on their opportunity card and has everything to do with the people that are sitting in its pews. The litmus test for if you want to discover if a church, a congregation is filled with the Spirit, all you have to do is sit and talk to the people and see if there's life change going on or not. Because it's the Spirit of God that guides us to be more godly, convicts us to become like Christ. And if you find yourself in a church that there is no life change and everybody just wants to live like they want to live, friends, I'll tell you what, they're not yielding to the Spirit of God. And I bet to say that the Spirit of God is not unifying that group because they're just not allowing Him to. The Spirit of God is explained like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if you live by the Spirit, you'll be put to death, and you'll put to death the misdeeds 
of your body. See, the Spirit gives us life, but life in Christ. It gives us the example to do what is godly and guides us to be more holy. And friends, that same Spirit that is in Jesus Christ is the same Spirit that is in you, and it's the same Spirit that is in me, and it becomes an interconnectedness among us. So the same Spirit that resides in this church is the same Spirit that resides in other churches just like it to bring unity amongst the believers so that the body of Christ will have life within it, complete life change. And I think sometimes the reason for disunity amongst the churches is because some congregations simply don't submit to the guidance and the leading of the Holy Spirit in their life. Here's the third thing that Paul says must have to happen in churches for there to be unity, and that is we proclaim the same hope. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that there is one hope. And that hope rests solely on Jesus Christ. I mean, we believe around here like the Bible expresses that Christ is the one that died for our sins, that Christ is the one that paid for our punishment, and that if we receive Christ, then we are saved from our sins, and we have the hope then of eternal life. You remember Jesus' bold proclamation? A bold proclamation that our world just doesn't seem to totally understand. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I'm the way and I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Then the bold proclamation, no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, that doesn't jive with some of you, because you've accepted a false doctrine, maybe through the teachings of another congregation or another denomination that have taught you that there might be more ways than one to get to God. But the Bible never says that. Jesus never expressed it. There's only one way for salvation, and that's through Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us that he's the way, that he's the truth, and he's the life. And any other congregation, any other denomination that wants to build on a different foundation than that, we need to break away from, because they're building on the wrong foundation of faith. Here's the fourth thing. Paul says that we have one Lord I look at this and say that we should submit to the same Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is an absolute. For churches to be unified, we have to put ourselves under the same kind of teaching and the same kind of philosophy. And when Jesus spoke the words in the gospel, he had really high standards for us to live by. I mean, increasingly high standards where you look at and you say, I don't know if I can live up to this. And he says, you can. You can be holy just like God is holy, but you have to allow the Holy Spirit to invade your life and to guide you and pursue a path of holiness. But you know, not every church does that. Not every believer does that. But did you know the greatest way we can show God's love is not through how much we give in the offering plate, not about how great we worship or not how well we love our neighbor. The Bible teaches us that the greatest way we can show God our love is by our obeying the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel that God points out that obedience is better than any kind of sacrifice that you can bring to him. And Jesus double downs on that statement in the New Testament. And Jesus says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, whoever has my commands and obeys them is the one that loves me. Catch it. If you love Jesus, you'll obey Jesus' teaching. Then he says, the one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show themselves to them. But you know, not every group puts themselves under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not every church 
recognizes Jesus as Lord. Not every movement looks to Christ as their master. There's a group that's been meeting since about 1989. They call themselves the Jesus Seminar. It's a group of self-proclaimed scholars of the Bible that get together, and their goal is to decipher what Jesus really said or didn't say. And so in these modern times, they look back almost 2,000 years ago, and they read through the statements of Jesus, and then they vote if Jesus really said these words or didn't say these words. Been meeting since 1989. It's 2014. Jesus hardly has said anything now, according to them. They've removed all the lordship of Jesus Christ from the Bible, believing that, well, he was just a man. Here's what these guys have concluded, and they're now persuading some denominations to claim these things as well. They say, Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem. That was just uh, some wrong written piece of scripture. Jesus was actually born in Nazareth because he's Jesus of Nazareth. They say, Jesus wasn't... uh, the one that really did any kind of faith healings. Jesus didn't walk amongst the people and heal anybody, not physically. Jesus only did it mentally. People had uh, some mental issues, and Jesus was like a psychologist, and he cured them of their psychology problems, not their physical problems. They look at the miracles of Jesus, and they say, Jesus never walked on water. Jesus never fed the 5,000. Jesus never raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus never rose a little girl from the dead. Jesus never healed anybody. Jesus didn't do anything like that. Then they go on to say that Jesus didn't bodily rise from the dead himself. There was no resurrection. They say the things that the Apostle Paul says and Peter and Mary, well, they were just wanting Jesus to rise from the dead, and so they wrote it that way. I am so thankful we're so smart 2,000 years after Christ. I'm so thankful that these guys have finally got it right, and now I don't have to adhere to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let's not do church anymore. Let's live like we want to live. But isn't that what these guys just decided? We don't need to pay attention to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Just accept him as Savior. He loves you. You just do what you want to do. You practice your own ethics. You go along the street of your own morals. Don't worry about those teachings of Jesus. He doesn't have any lordship. You know, it sounds like to me that that group of scholars is not willing to submit to Jesus. And I would say this, might sound brash, but any church that's not willing to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you need to break away from. Here's the fifth thing the Apostle Paul says, Ephesians 5. He says, we have one faith. Now, faith here is not about you. This is about God. This is about Jesus. Faith in this situation is represented about Us relying on Jesus Christ completely for the forgiveness of our sins. As a matter of fact, faith is best defined as a complete dependency on Jesus as Savior. That you believe that only Jesus can save you. Not your good works, not your baptism, not how well you follow the scriptures. But alone, Jesus Christ is the one that saves you. And for that belief to be true, you've got to accept that Jesus Christ really is God's Son. Somewhere in that faith process of believing in Jesus, you have to come to the same conclusion that the Apostle Peter did. Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. You are Messiah. You are Savior. You have divinity. You are God's Son. But the moment that you strip the divinity away from Jesus, 
you lose the proclamation that he can save you. You lose the power of his salvation. He just becomes a man that was a good teacher. He doesn't become a savior over your sins. Maybe you read in the papers about three weeks ago, a well-known Christian author, a man by the name of John Ortenberg. He pastors a church right outside of San Francisco. It's called a Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. Well, just a little while ago, they had discovered that many of the Presbyterian ministers in that denomination don't believe that Jesus has divinity. And that scared the leadership of Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. So they rallied themselves together and they decided that it would be best to break fellowship with the Presbyterian Church because after all, they no longer believed in the, in the uh, divinity of Jesus. And so they went to their congregation, a congregation of about 4,000, and they said, we want to break fellowship, but we need your vote. The congregation overwhelmingly said, we believe in the divinity of Jesus, even if our denomination doesn't. So the leadership had a problem on their hands. What do they do? They decided it would be best to break fellowship with the Presbyterian USA denomination. You know, the report had said that it's going to cost Manello Park $8.9 million to break away. You know what I found out? When you take the divinity of Jesus away from the church, you have no authority. And the leadership of Manila Park, they had discovered that if you take the divinity away from Jesus, we no longer have a platform to preach. Jesus was just a good man. He wasn't a savior. And I'd say a congregation or a denomination that removes Jesus as savior should be broken free from regardless of what it costs. Apostle Paul adds one more thing. A thing that should unify us. It's a major thing, but unfortunately, this one doctrine has divided the church like no other issue. He says, there's one baptism. I would put it like this. We're unified with Christ. You know, Satan has used this issue more than any other issue in the church to hamstring congregations. This is some of the reasons why there are denominations. It has nothing more to do with what mode or method of baptism do we accept. Now, nearly every single Christian congregation says that baptism somewhere in the life of the believer is necessary. But it's just a matter of when and how. And the mode of baptism has caused so much strife amongst the believers. You have congregations that wonder and denominations that proclaim, we sprinkle and that's all we do. Or we pour, and that's all there is. Or it's not anything to do with water. It's more like the baptism of the Holy Spirit that you need to be baptized in. Some churches, like ourselves, believe in baptism of immersion, where you're fully submerged and you're capturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let me tell you what. Nearly every congregation understands that this is God-directed and not man-directed. And regardless of what you were taught, Regardless of your faith background or what maybe a church has told you, you're not baptized into a church. You're only baptized into his church. And we've got to take all these scriptures together about baptism and not just single some out. And we have to remember that there's more going on in the baptistry than what we recognize on a spiritual level than there is on a physical level. Friends, here's my theory on baptism. If this is what Christ has asked me to do, and in this method and manner, 
then by all means, I'm going to completely do what Christ asked me to do. And it's funny that the division begins about the mode of baptism. But let me just be a good Bible teacher here for a moment and tell you why it is that we've chosen at Bethany to baptize by immersion. Did you know that the Bible was translated from Greek, the New Testament? And when we use the word baptism, we're still speaking Greek. It's not a translation, it's what's called a transliteration. Meaning that the translator said, that word is hands off. We're not going to touch that word because that word has divided too many people. So we're just going to leave it in its original form. And did you know that in its original form, that word, the core of the definition, means to submerge something completely underwater. Did you know that the early church, this was the only mode and method they used? They didn't know any other mode and method because they didn't have any other kind of definition that went with baptism. Did you know this is what Jesus demonstrated when John the Baptist baptized him? He was lowered into the water, the Bible says, and he rose up. Did you know that that you can't find sprinkling, pouring, or baptism only by the Spirit for salvation in the Scriptures? Now, maybe you've been taught that from the pulpit, or maybe you've learned that in a class, but have you discovered it for yourself in the Scriptures? If you're someone here today that wants to dispute this because so many denominations have been founded on this, I want to meet with you. I'm not going to do it heavy-handedly or authoritatively. I just want to give you a Bible study so that you'll open up the Scriptures, go home, study for themselves, and see what your conclusion is. There'll be no pressure on my part. It'll just be between you and God because that's what baptism is about. You're not being baptized into the church. I don't get more money for the most baptisms. Wish it would. But I don't. But maybe you've taken that position. That when I was baptized, I was baptized into a denomination. I was baptized into a church. And the Bible never expresses that. Baptism is about you and Him, not about you and anybody else. And friends, we need to stop this foolishness of letting the mode, the method, divide us. The Bible makes it so clear about what takes place. And I think anyone who struggles, anyone who struggles with what the New Testament says about baptism probably struggles with some of the harder teachings of Jesus too. Around here we see baptism as the first point of obedience. And I say if we're not willing to humble ourselves and follow in what God has instructed and what Jesus has demonstrated, I would bet to say that you're probably not willing to follow Jesus in some of his more difficult teachings. Baptism is about humility in Christ, sharing his death, burial, and resurrection. It's so important that Jesus points it out by this. In Mark 16, 16, he says, Believe, be baptized, you'll be saved. Here's the last thing that unifies us. And that is remembering that we're children of a living God. And Paul ends his unifying qualities by ending verse 6. Listen to how he ends verse 6. One God, one Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Friends, did you know when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, we become sons and daughters of a living God? Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, So in Christ Jesus, you're all children of God through faith. What's faith? Faith is complete dependency on Jesus Christ for salvation. 
So all of you who were baptized into Christ have what? What have we done? We've clothed ourselves with Christ. You see the importance still that the Bible places on baptism? And when we are unified in these six things that we talked about, we share the same Father. One of the old Aesop fables is a story about a an older father that has a dysfunctional family and he wants to bring his kids back together and unify them. So he tells his children to go out and find a stick from a tree that had fallen down and is dead to bring it back to him, and they do. And he takes those sticks that they brought back and he bundles them up. He ties them together as tightly as he can. And then he goes around and he hands the bundle to each child and he says, break it. And try with all their might to break that bundle of sticks and he just can't do it. And he They hand it back to the dad, and the dad unties the bundle of sticks, and then he hands the sticks back to them, and he says, now go ahead and break the sticks you brought to me. And they they break them in half, no problem, brittle wood, easy to break singularly. And that fable ends with these words. The father says, my sons, if you are of one mind and united to assist each other, you will be like this bundle uninjured by the attempts of your enemies. But if you are divided among yourselves, you'll be broken as easily as these sticks. And friends, the church is strongest when it's unified. Jesus tells us that a unified church, that no matter what hell throws at it, cannot be overcome or demolished cannot be fractured or ruined, can never disappear from the earth, regardless of oppressant governments or decrees or laws that are formed, regardless of how they say they'll threaten you with with death if you meet together as Christians under one roof, regardless of what happens, regardless of what hell can throw at us, the Bible tells us that when we're unified, nothing can overcome us because Jesus Christ is the unifying factor. And if you want to be a part of this, If you want to be a part of the strength that Jesus Christ brings to this world called the church, you know where it begins? It begins with belief. Simple, simple belief. Belief that Jesus is God's Son. Belief that Jesus is Savior. Committing yourself to following Jesus as Lord. And like Jesus demonstrated and instructed, coupling belief with baptism, and sharing in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection.